I pour wine upon this stone, the emblem of joy and cheerfulness. And may we rejoice at the revelation of truth, and may virtue flourish as the vine. I sprinkle oil upon this stone, the emblem of peace and unanimity. And may the peace which passeth all understanding descend from heaven and abide with us forever. Cool. All right. Well, I guess I wanted to start. So we're not using your real name for the story. Um, since we're not using your real name, do you have a preference for what we'll call you or refer to you? We'll probably make up a name for you in the story, but if you have a preference for what you want that to be, tell me. Uh, a good pseudonym would be probably, I don't want it to sound too very made up in the same time. I wanted something, also wanted to be a bit special. So uh let's try to call it uh solomon solomon okay cool i like that this is producer uh, alex atak speaking right, with so, solomon uh, solomon is not his real name uh, we're keeping him anonymous and it'll be obvious why later on i was born and raised in, in baghdad in iraq uh, uh, i was born in the late 80s and i stayed in iraq all the way till 2006. During that time, during uh, the first 10 years of my life, I was living in my family house. And that was during the times of the previous regime, during the Saddam Hussein's government. In the summer vacation between June and September, there wasn't very much to do. The television stations wouldn't start broadcasting until the afternoon. And it was so hot in those summer months that if you wanted to go outside and ride bikes or play football with your friends, you'd have to wait until the evening. So during the day, Solomon needed to entertain himself. So in my situation, it was customary to go and raid the family library. Uh, my grandfather was a member of the Iraqi government from the 60s all the way till the late 70s. And he traveled a lot and he studied in the United States. So we had a big library with a very good collection of Arabic and Western literature. Solomon and his cousin, who was around his age, would spend their mornings in the family library paging through books. Then later in the day, they'd talk about what they'd read over lunch with their grandfather. And it was one time, it was 1999, I was uh, about uh, 11 years old, where uh, I came across the term Freemasonry in one of the books, and it was uh, in Arabic, it wasn't in English. What is Freemasonry in Arabic? Sorry, just to jump in. Uh, Al-Masoniyah. Al-Masoniyah. Oh, okay, cool. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the book, he found all these old diagrams of some common Freemasonry symbols. You might have seen some of them before. The most famous one is the square and the compass with a big letter G in the middle. He saw these symbols, and he also saw the word Al-Masuniya next to them, and wasn't really sure what it meant. So our plan was, let's discuss this with Grandad over lunch today. And uh, my grandfather is a very uh, open-minded person. On this one subject, however, uh, when we were having lunch, uh, I asked my grandfather, what is Masonia? What is uh, Freemasonry? In other words, Jiddu, Shinul Masonia, Grandad, what is Freemasonry? And at this moment, his reaction was very much unexpected. His eyes widened open and he had an expression of completely, uh, completely taken off by surprise. And his reaction went, where did you read this term? Where did you, which book? So we pointed out to the book and he he kind of closed the books. He took it, put it under his arm and said, 
don't you ever uh, utter these words again in, in Iraq and never say anything about this. And uh, I don't want to discuss this even further. And uh, lunch is over. Wow. This word and Masuniya, or Freemasonry, and the mysterious symbols of the all-seeing eye and the pyramid stayed in the back of his mind. Years later, they'd sent him on a search to figure out why he'd found them in that book in his family library, and why his grandfather had been so adamant to never speak of it again. I'm Zaina Balutz, and this is Curtain Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa, and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Our story today comes from producer Alex Atak. About a decade after that day in his family library when he was young, Solomon moved from his family home in Iraq to study in Lebanon. Uh, my, my, my days in Lebanon were kind of a renaissance for me, uh, or at least for my own curiosity. He'd never discussed Freemasonry with his grandfather, but he was always curious about it. And then at university, when he started reading more about history and philosophy, he kept seeing that same word and those same symbols coming up in some of the books that he was reading. And then... Uh, I started this at that moment. I started to read more about it, about uh, what is Freemasonry? What is it? Uh, what is the philosophy of it? How do you get initiated? And what he found was that Freemasonry is kind of hard to define. It's not a religion, but it is religious. It's not a political movement, but its members are full of politicians. Basically, it's a 300-year-old fraternal organization, kind of like a men's club, whose members are bound by a set of common principles. But there was also something mysterious about it. Freemasonry is infamous for its secrecy. You've probably heard about the secret handshakes or the rituals that happen behind closed doors. And as Solomon read more into Freemasonry, he kept seeing these names of famous politicians, academics and philosophers popping up in his books. People like Mozart, George Washington, Saad Zaglul. And it wasn't until I moved to the United States. Now, there, 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 where Freemasonry started to get, I started to get much more interest in it. Solomon moved to the US in 2014 to work. And pretty soon after he arrived, he decided that he was going to quench this curiosity. And so he reached out to his local Masonic Lodge. By just Googling his Masonic Lodge near me, and there was a handful of more than 10 within about 30 minutes driving distance. A Masonic Lodge, by the way, is basically like a clubhouse for a local Freemasonry chapter. They're all over the US and Europe. Some states have more than one. He wasn't necessarily interested in being a Freemason at this point, but he thought that he'd at least get in touch and see what he could find out. I lived in the United States alone and uh, I had some free time in the evenings and I said, you know what, this is, this is it. I'm going to email a, a lodge and, you know, request a meeting and basically see if I can get a tour, if I can speak with a couple of them, a uh, couple of Freemasons. So they arranged a date and a time for Solomon to come in. And when he showed up at this local lodge, what he found was a nondescript red brick building on the corner of a quiet street in a leafy suburb of the city. There was a florist and a funeral home on the opposite side of the road. The building itself is square with a flat roof. It looks a bit like a community hall. There's an arched doorway, a big wooden door, and above it an American flag and the Masonic square and compass symbol. 
He stepped inside and met one of the people he'd been emailing with. Basically, I had two hours discussion and would meet in the lodge. We walk about the lodge and talk about the history, talk about my background, their background. What does it do for me? What I can do for the craft? They're not trying to pitch masonry for me, and I'm not trying to show a big interest. It's just a discussion, and it always ends up, if you are more interested, you're welcome to come in, join the dinner. A lot of Masonic lodges will meet once a month over a dinner where they'll do stuff like voting on new members or catching up on admin. Sometimes there'll be a presentation or or a guest speaker talking about the ritual or the history of Freemasonry. So the next time Solomon's local chapter met, he went along as well. So you come, you meet with other uh, members of Freemasons and you introduce yourself. They introduce, some of them come in and say, oh, are you a candidate? Are you inquiring? Let me tell you and about my story. So you start collecting stories and data about why did you, wh- how did you become a Mason? Why did you become a Mason? And you, if you're convinced enough, if uh, you can ask to fill a petition. And by this point, Solomon was interested enough that he wanted to try and join. My name is William Burns, and uh, I am called a worshipful brother, which means that I have sat in the head chair of my lodge at least once. So that's quite, is that quite a senior position within the lodge? Is it the most senior position? It is. It absolutely is. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. William was already a Freemason at Solomon's local lodge. He'd already been a member for a few years. Now... There are a few prerequisites to becoming a Freemason. In mainstream lodges, it is a hard and fast rule that you have to be a man. Women can't join. After that, you also have to believe in God. Uh, It can be any God, any religion. You just have to believe in what they call a grand architect. And then there's a few more things. You need to be a resident in that state for, I believe, at least six months. You have to be over 18 And I'll just say this part, you have to be a sound mind, if that makes sense. Can I just ask, actually, if you could, what what does of sound mind mean? Of sound mind meaning that you have a good head on your shoulders. You are not crazy. You, that's that's what I'm trying to get at. The main thing that attracted Solomon to it was... As he put it, every time he'd read about some important historical event, the Freemasons seemed to have played some role in it. And he liked the kind of character-building aspect of it as well. He saw it as a way to help himself become a better person. So the first step after that initial meeting is, he had to get two people who were already Freemasons to vouch for him. It's kind of like references in a job interview. You, You get a couple brothers to sign your petition who agree that you would be a decent fit. After that, it goes to the lodge and your petition is voted on. After it's voted on and it's, it's you know, approved, they will assign an investigation committee, a group of brothers that will literally come to your house, hang out, talk to you. It's a chance for them to kind of see. It's a pretty tough vetting process. And there's this expectation that you take it seriously. Uh, that once you're in, you're in. We call it a fraternity, but it's kind of like a gang. Once in, never out. And just like in gangs in any fraternity, if you do something extremely horrible, you will get outed (laughs) one way or the other. So after you've filed your petition and the investigation committee have come to your house and interviewed you and interviewed your family, 
The next thing they'll do is they'll hold a vote at their next meeting. They take it back to Lodge again, and then it's voted on. And that's where some of your your fun stories come in of being blackballed. Have you ever heard of that term? I don't think I have. Okay, well, being blackballed is if anybody, it's a, it's, it's a silent vote in a way that there's this box and you have black objects and white objects. If any of the black objects show up in the box, that means that you're, you're not going to get initiated. You don't get to join. If it's in a positive way, the following month you get initiated, you go through the first degree. And this initiation is where things get a bit secretive. Basically, it's a ceremony where a prospective Freemason has to memorize a portion of a secret Masonic ritual and recite it in front of a group, sometimes blindfolded. In some cases, they might have to present an original research paper to prove that they're well-studied in Freemasonry. There are three levels of this, or they call them degrees in Freemasonry. The first two are called the Entered Apprentice and the Fellow Craft Degrees. The last level is called the Master Mason degree. Advancing from one degree to the next can take anything from days, months, or years. It basically depends on how dedicated the person is. Once they prove proficient for the Fellow Craft degree, the the big one coming, or uh, the third degree, the Master Mason degree, which is pretty much the, uh, it's like your senior year in college. This is the last one. This is the big one. And this is a really big one. And the Master Mason degree, the ceremony or the lessons in it, it's, it's quite marvelous and, and very, very impactful, even if you are blindfolded or not. And as he was going through uh, this initiation process, he still didn't fully understand why his grandfather had been so spooked by his questions about Freemasonry all those years ago. To him, it just seemed like a positive thing, a pathway to making himself a better person. And then while he was going through his degrees... He'd signed up to various Facebook groups about Freemason history, and one day he was scrolling through one of them, and this name popped up. The name of his great-grandfather. Uh, well, I, 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 I read about him to be a Freemason through a Facebook post, and that's for me was... And again, you, you take Facebook posts with a, with a gallon of salt, not a grain of salt. He knew a bit about his great-grandfather already. He knew that he'd grown up in the suburbs of Baghdad in the first half of the 20th century, He knew that he'd studied in Lebanon and then the United States, and then later became the Prime Minister of Iraq. For the same reason we're keeping Solomon's name anonymous, we're not naming his great-grandfather here either. But he was a well-respected diplomat who was passionate about education in Iraq and protecting Palestinian rights. This is him speaking on Zionism at the UN during the 1950s. It is the view of the Iraqi government that the Middle East can have no peace or tranquility and that world peace will always remain in jeopardy until and unless Arab rights in Palestine are completely restored and until the Israeli danger is completely removed from the Middle East. Of course, we. I knew much about him uh, since, I mean, I lived in the family house. So we had photos, uh, we had relics and what do we call uh, medals of honors from different countries uh, given to him by Kamil Shamoun of Lebanon and the King Hussein of Jordan and of course Tunisia. Uh, so I, I knew that he was a, 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 big, uh, a big name in the political and the diplomatic world. 
But in this Facebook post, it said that his great-grandfather was also a Freemason and that he'd been part of a lodge in Basra and that in the early part of the 20th century, there were lodges all across the Middle East. For me, that was a part of a personal puzzle that I needed to solve. Was he really a Freemason? And if he was a Freemason, how involved was he? And what happened to the lodges in Iraq? What happened in the lodges in Syria or Lebanon? So after he was initiated as a Freemason himself in the U.S., Solomon started asking around his local lodge and the wider Freemasonry community in the U.S. And uh, interestingly, didn't get a straight answer, but I got referred to, you know, try to talk to this brother from this lodge and try to talk to this some person from that lodge. And I get multiple referral until I ended up uh, communicating with certain Freemasons who lives in Haifa. This man was an Iraqi Jew who was forced to leave Iraq after the overthrow of the monarchy in 1958. And he remembered the Masonic lodges that were there before the regime change. And uh, I was shared with photos of the, uh, the Grand Lodge of Basra, the Grand Lodge of Baghdad. In the photographs, you see old men stood in a neat formation, wearing bow ties and immaculate dinner suits and their Masonic tunics. One of the men is holding a staff, another is holding a sword. When I, when I mentioned my family name, it was... Uh, uh, straightforward do you and his uh, question was uh, is this person related to you and uh, my answer is that this is my great grandfather and uh, he told me that uh, yes i mean there the he was a freemason and he was active pretty very strongly active freemason to to the degree of uh, being a master or a grandmaster but he was a freemason in iraq at the worst possible time to be a freemason in iraq without warning Revolution has swept away the young King Faisal of Iraq and his uncle, Crown Prince Abdul Ilah. In 1958, the pro-British monarchy was overthrown in a coup. The tide of Arab nationalism is again in flood. The king is reported a prisoner. And the new regime took a hard line against anybody who was involved in the old regime, including Solomon's great-grandfather. Then that is of what one of the points he got prosecuted after, after 1958. And one of his accusations is that he is not just a, an Anglophile, he was also a Freemason. He, he, he was prosecuted, he was sentenced for execution, and he was uh, wearing the red uh, jumpsuit and waiting in the prison cells until his uh, sentence day. We'll be back after the break. When we left off, Solomon's great-grandfather who was an influential politician in Iraq in the 1950s, had just been prosecuted and sentenced to death uh, after the regime change for, among other things, being a Freemason. We wanted to understand what was going on here, um, what was going on in this particular moment in history. So we called up a couple of historians. People have been sort of, sort of freaked out by Masonic secrecy almost since the beginning. Christopher Hodap is a historian and author of Freemasons for Dummies. He's been a Freemason himself since 1998. In England, when the first Grand Lodge was formed in 1717, within five years, there were, the, there were newspaper articles, you know, people making fun of them or, or people saying, you know, they're not doing, they're doing something nefarious behind closed doors. And it sort of has continued ever since many times repackaging the very same, you know, claims and stories that were that were written about uh, in the 1780s and 90s. So Freemasonry started in England in 1717 and became particularly popular in the US over the next hundred years or so. 
And when Britain and France began colonizing countries in the Middle East in the early 1900s, they started setting up Freemasonry lodges all around the region. During the Ottoman Empire, I think it was like a Christian concept that came to the Middle East via mainly missionaries and a lot of uh, Muslims or Druzes or also Maronites looked at it with suspicion and didn't really trust it because it came with a with the foreigners. Um, I think that changed quite quickly. I think Dorothy Summer wrote her PhD on Freemasonry in the Middle East. And she told me that although these Masonic lodges that European colonialists set up were regarded with suspicion at first, quite quickly, intellectuals, journalists and politicians all started to join the fraternity. At one point, they were the largest society in the Middle East, um, besides, of course, the religious uh, congregations. And they collected money and um, they did donations for um, schools, for hospitals. Um, so if you're that kind of person who wants also to give and help others, uh, that, and, and also you're, you're sociable, you like the sociability, talk to others and meet with others, uh, that's your thing. And it was attractive to all of these men in high up positions in politics, business and media because it gave them a place to meet and network with each other. When I'm in Beirut and, my, and I'm an intellectual, I'm a journalist or whatever, um, how do I connect with people? It's through the lodges. How do I connect with people when I'm a trader and work on a ship in, uh, on, in Tripoli who's close to the sea and who's built on trading? I go to the lodge there, I can do my business. If I'm living on Mount Lebanon, for example, where there's a lot of um, landowners, how can I, can I connect to the other landowners? I go to the lodges. But by the 1940s and the age of decolonization, Freemasonry was starting to become outlawed in a lot of countries across the Middle East. And so I'm curious like how it went from being something that was actually quite seems like it was quite popular even if even if it was secretly popular in a strange way like how did it go from that to becoming something that was completely taboo that i mean in iraq you have people being sentenced to death for being af affiliated with freemasonry there's one researcher um, called margaret margaret jacob and uh, she said once that the lodges are playgrounds for democracy because what they have is uh, elections within their own circles, but they they have laws, they have elections, they have rules, they have moral behavior, they kind of um, uh, practice uh, moral and political emancipation. And I think if if you have a ruler, if it's a, a king, a, a monarch, or if you, if you have a dictatorship, you don't want to see that. In all reality, dictatorships, um, they don't even like, you know, private stamp collecting clubs because they know sooner or later those guys are going to get together and they're going to talk about politics. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, part of the situation in the past with dictatorships is that the Freemasons frequently would be um, uh, upper middle class men, um, you know, sometimes often involved in, in positions in the government, or in businesses or, or, you know, other potentially influential areas. 
And so the last thing you want them to do is have private meetings um, that, that they uh, promise not to tell anybody what goes on in those meetings. And so they become the first guys on the list that you want to shut down. In the meantime, there was this other conspiracy theory that was starting to get more popular at the time and is actually still around today. Basically, it's the idea that Freemasonry is a front for a Zionist organization. And it's, and it's funny because you don't start seeing those kinds of objections until after the 1940s. You know, you've got the Balfire Declaration and then you have, uh, you know, essentially the formation of Israel. Then all of a sudden, all those kinds of, of stories start coming out that, well, this is the real problem with it. It's a front for a Jewish organization or, or, or more important, a Zionist organization. It has no basis in fact, but part of where that conspiracy comes from is because of some of the basic foundations of Freemasonry. The very basic, the fundamental uh, structure of the fraternity is based around a biblical story about the Temple of Solomon uh, built on Mount Moriah, which happens to be the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Um, And so that's kind of where that conflict really at its most base level is based. So just to make sure I'm understanding it right, so it's like the the Freemasons have this kind of, uh, Solomon's Temple is, is kind of very important in Freemasonry, and Solomon's Temple is also very important in Judaism and kind of therefore for Israel. Is that is that the connection? Yeah. But no, it had nothing to do with the Sinists and also the elders of Sin and then these, all these conspiracy theories. I think it serves uh, the ones who use them, but it has uh, no truth behind it. But by the time this theory had planted its roots, it didn't really matter whether or not it was true. Leaders across the Middle East used it to their advantage. And by 1980, Freemasonry was punishable by law in many countries, including Iraq. Solomon's great-grandfather was trialed under this law back in 1958, and he was sentenced to death. But then, After he was sentenced to death, many kings and, and well-known diplomats, uh, one of whom was Indira Gandhi, King Mohammed V, King of Morocco, King Hussein of Jordan, of course, Bourguiba of Tunis, petitioned the Iraqi government to, to release my great-grandfather from his death sentence and basically to be granted exile in Tunisia. So through all of this political pressure, his great-grandfather was released from prison his death sentence was withdrawn, and he moved to Tunisia. He spent his, his life there teaching at a university until he passed away in 1997. An obituary in the New York Times described him as, quote, a mild scholarly man with a schoolmasterly mien who sought friendly relations with the Western world, setting him apart from many other Arab leaders who remained deeply suspicious of Western intentions. I actually smiled when I, when I read these resources of the New York Times or talking to that gentleman in, uh, living in Haifa. I took it with a smile, kind of moment of proud. And, and it's also a despair for having to go through that, uh, all this kind of time and hardship just to know about someone as close as your great-grandfather. So, And so did that kind of, um, did that kind of make you more interested in joining the Freemasons yourself? Of course. Uh, for a personal point, it gave me validation to be more a Freemason. You know, interestingly, the reason I, uh, Alex, I, I requested not to use my name, mind to tell you that I even, maybe even uh, some members of my family, I don't share with them. I don't share the fact I'm a Freemason with many members of my community. Because 
fear of prosecution, fear to be labeled that you're doing a wrong thing, even though you know it's not a wrong thing. Although uh, you still feel you're doing something clandestine. The more he got into Freemasonry, the more he would have to maintain a firewall between these two identities, Solomon the Freemason and Solomon the Iraqi. If you were to talk about it with any of your family in Iraq or maybe even any of your friends in Iraq, what would their reaction be? Well, it's it's always a debate before I decide or I want to talk. Uh, the reason is, is not that I am ashamed of it or try to hide it, nor that it's a reason for me to, I know they will be against it, but it's for me a way to protect them from thinking about a danger that could affect them or affect me just because I'm a Freemason. What, what would that be, those risks? Well, the risks are many. The term Freemasonry is synonymous with Zionism. And uh, these two synonymous words are even mentioned in the Iraqi code of uh, criminal charges, if we, so to speak, and that in the Iraqi law, stating that anyone who harbors Masonic, Zionistic ideas or support or promote will be sentenced to death. But the risk was worth it because of the community he'd found in Freemasonry, as unlikely as it was. In 2016, Solomon was still a relatively new immigrant to the US, moving to the country at a particularly turbulent and divided time in its recent history. Chicago, Friday night. A Trump rally cancelled after protesters clashed with Trump supporters. Hillary killed our comrade! Ronald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. It was a very difficult time. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. It disrupted relationship between families. And I find this to be very bad for, 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 the, for the fabric of society. So... These people who have been talked about as someone who would clash completely if it's over the dinner table or in the cafe or the bar are people at my lodge, people who I've seen their Facebook post, for example, and see that person is posting about something that I completely disagree with. But we, when we eat at lodge, there's always a hug. There is always a smile. Here's Chris Hodap again. In the very first formal documents of the fraternity. Um, uh, it lays it right out and, and says that it is a place that men will meet who would have otherwise uh, never met each other, uh, never contact each other in any way, shape, or form. So the first primary two rules are no discussion of religion and no discussion of politics. And that holds true even today, which you know, many people, not just me, um, we we see Freemasonry today as a place where people can go that's a sanctuary from all the crap in the outside world. In the US around 100 years ago, one in 25 men was a Freemason. Everybody had a Freemason somewhere in their extended family. But today, the numbers are dwindling. There are only around four or five million Freemasons worldwide, and with only one or two lodges anywhere in the Middle East, Freemasonry has almost fallen through the cracks of history. For Solomon, even though it's this positive force in his life, it would be impossible to take it home with him if he ever moved back to Iraq. 
I mean, I can talk about my goal is to, or as kind of a naive goal, just like as you are in high school and say, I want to win Nobel Prize. My Nobel Prize in masonry was is probably to be able to reestablish a Grand Lodge of Iraq or Baghdad or Basra or a Grand Lodge of Lebanon or the Grand Lodge of Syria, whose wave have a very rich history. Is there a world though that you like can? I don't know, move back to Iraq one day and like maybe start the first lodge since, you know, the previous one. Like, is that, is that a, is that a, uh, is that a possible future or is, is that completely off the table? Well, I, well, if anything that's proven is that there is no impossible. I may be helpful to leave some historical context or start the groundwork for this to be happen in the future. But I mean, the way I see the political f- uh, future in Iraq, I don't see a hope to reestablish the Grand Lodge of Baghdad <laughs> or the Grand Lodge of the Levant or the Grand Lodge of Syria in the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, not even in my time, maybe. You talk about masonry like it's a very personal, private thing. And obviously this this kind of journey really began when you moved to the States alone without your family. This is Cunning Culture's researcher Tamara Jabouri, who was in on the interview as well. But at the same time, this curiosity was kind of sparked from, from the family history. And I'm curious to know whether you think this was like a circumstantial accident or if you think this is something that's going to be really like play a role in your life forever. Uh, it, that, that's a good question. It, it is... Uh... It does feel that I am living some kind of the legacy that my forefathers had, and it it's it satisfies me and makes me proud. Of course, if I have my kids here in the United States or any part of the Western world, that conversation is different because the society is much more tolerant of it. But if I have my kids in the Middle East, I wouldn't be even thinking of talking about it just the same way I haven't uh, that certain part of my family members doesn't know about it, certain friends are. For the same reason, we're using a pseudonym for this interview. It's not to be have to be deal with this kind of worry of being known as a Mason or just talking about Freemasonry. Again, it's not a matter of awareness, raising awareness, but it's a matter of protection. If I am my grandfather in modern-day Iraq uh, and I have my grandson is coming in and saying, basically, if that situation were reenacted in a way, I'm sure my reaction would be the same thing as my grandfather. I don't want my grandson, if they are in Iraq, ever to talk about Freemasonry without knowing the consequences. And being at that age, 11 years old, of course, no child at the age of 11 will can understand the, the impact uh, of such the consequences of uttering the word Masonic in Iraq. So to reflect back of it, I think my grandfather's reaction was well justified, especially that he was always a promoter for me that uh, always continued to read and study. That was his, even before we talked about Freemasonry, is that You should always read, you should always investigate, you should always inquire and ask and try to find answers and solutions, not just by reading, by meeting with people, communicating with people and connecting with people. (laughs) 
This episode was written and produced by Alex Atak and Tamara Jabouri and edited by me, Dana Balut, with editorial support from Nadine Shakir and Zena Duwidar. Fact-checking by Tamara Jabouri, sound design and mixing by Mohamed Khrezat and Alex Atak. A special thanks to everyone we spoke to for this episode, Solomon, William Burns, Dorothy Summer and Christopher Hodap. We didn't go very deep into Masonic rituals and history in this episode. There is so much to go into if you're interested in that. I'd recommend as a good place to start Christopher's book, Freemasons for Dummies. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Take care.